Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. We've had a little bit of a format rejig, so every week I'll be joined by two brilliant women to discuss the key news of the week, and together we'll be interviewing some amazing guests. This week I'm joined by vocal coach and presenter Carrie Grant, and star of E4's The Sex Clinic and nurse Sarah Melindwa. We'll be discussing coronavirus and talking to head teacher Vic Goddard about why it's particularly worrying for disadvantaged pupils. Plus, we meet Dr. Karen Gurney, a.k.a. The Sex Doctor, who talks to us about desire, long-term relationships, and why sex might be the thing that sorts out our immune systems. Now, when we've been talking about coronavirus all week, one of the things I had not given any thought to was the impact on some of the kids in our schools. I've been reading, I'm sure you have ladies, about how actually for kids it's not as serious, it's not as impacting them in the same way. Then there was all this discussion about are we going to close the schools, are we not? No, we're not. They're still going to be going to school. Oh, this is fine. And then I saw a tweet from Vic Goddard, who head teacher at Passmore's Academy, my recognise him from Educating Essex, um, about what is going to happen should they close the schools to those kids that are on free school meals and are relying on yeah. those for essentially mm. food. Yeah. Um, and he is launching a really fantastic campaign about this. We've got him on the phone now. Vic, hi. Hi. So tell us what you are asking the government to do. The problem we get is that we get public money, you know, money from the government, from taxation, etc., to feed some of our young people. We get about £2.30 a day per child for those that need that. Um, and, of course, if we close down, we will still be in receipt of that money, and those children won't be in receipt of that food. So mm. what I'm trying to do is get permission from central government to say that we can give that money to the families, but obviously... You know, just giving cash to people isn't always the best idea. So we've been working with our local Tesco branch about converting those £2.30s into vouchers and for them to be able to then spend those on, on food in Tesco's, hopefully when Tesco's restock the shelves, um, send those on through there. You know, we can't, it's not a perfect situation. and I don't think we're going to get perfect situations, but at least the right people are getting the opportunity to, to, to get the money they deserve. I think it's an incredible thing you're doing and I hope the government listens to it because 
the other story that I've seen a lot uh, on social media and the news this week is actually what's happening to food banks. So all of us stockpiling all of this food that we might have been giving or that supermarkets might, supermarkets might have been giving to their local food banks and it's now not going. And those in the most need of it do not have access. I think the biggest problem we've got is that, you know, we're a food bank. We give out food bank vouchers at school. We're one mm. of their sort of satellites. The problem we've got is that, unfortunately, we, we feel, it feels like we have a government that thinks of everything top down. Yeah. And actually, education should always be thought of bottom up. You know, so who's who's at the bottom of the pile? Who are, who's mm. the people who need the most support? Who's the who are the most vulnerable in these situations? And let's make decisions for them first, because everything else will then follow from that. But we've got a government that worries about business, and don't get me wrong, I understand business is important and it feeds people and pays people's salaries. But at moments like this, we they, you know not to even mention the impact of this on our most vulnerable is just you know I think it's such a such an own goal from the government and, you know, maybe indicative of where we are. I know in my community, the special educational needs community, some of our parents are absolutely dreading, well, trying to explain to their children about the coronavirus because their children quite often suffer with really high anxiety. So there's all of that. And then being stuck in a house all day is also not very good. Um... So there's a whole challenge, you know, when you consider, I think it's something like 17% of children have special educational needs. It's, 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 an, it's, an, it's a significant number of children. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're about a third of our young people. We're a very inclusive school. You know, we really are, you know, welcome with our whole community. And there is no doubt that you can see the anxiety across our school. You know, mm. behaviour has been difficult this week because young people want answers to questions that we can't give them. And, you know, you can see that anxiety building up. And when there's a lack of leadership, and that's what it feels like from central government, from the DfE to us, when there's a lack of leadership, what fills that void is anxiety. And when you've got young people who are inclined to be anxious anyway, probably because of how they've been treated by the education system in Mm -hmm. lots of times, you know, that, that then ratchets it up. And then you end up with anxious families who are then looking for people to blame and looking for support and unfortunately schools are often the answer to every question but Vic, um, do, the, do, do the like you said you've just contacted the government do they listen to you um they they are much more media they are much more social media aware than they've ever been mm-hmm. um i you know don't so listen I, to parents I, no. yeah, I, you know i phoned i phoned up the we have a, an education coronavirus helpline so i phoned yeah. that up um last week and said this is what I want to do. Can you can you just make sure that I'm not going to go to prison from doing it? That I'm not yeah. just giving away yeah. public money. Just make sure it's legal. Make sure it's okay. And then then like you know, people are waiting to hear it's okay. And unfortunately, the person on the line says, "Well, I can't answer that, but I know some of the department who probably can. Fantastic. Give me their name. I can't do that. Mm. Give me their number. I can't do that. Can you put me through to them? No, I can't do that." Because we've got a government that's trying to say carry on business as usual, so they don't yeah. want to discuss the what ifs. Mm-hmm. So we're in a really ridiculous space where we know the likely outcome of the next couple of weeks. We want to plan for it, so we're not leaving people vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But the government doesn't want to send the message it's even thinking about it, and that's that's unfortunately will affect the most disadvantaged and most vulnerable in our communities. And that's yeah. I'm sorry, it's not good enough. How are you, you you said it's hard to talk about this with kids because it raises anxiety. How are you talking 
about coronavirus to them. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, a, a really extensive tutor time. I think one of the things that we've been able to do, because we have, we have mixed age classes, so when our young people arrive, they're put into a house rather than a year group. Mm-hmm. It's as close to Harry Potter without broomsticks as you can imagine, <laughs> is the only way I can describe it. And so we've been able to use those sort of mixed age sort of half an hour as we have a day with them to sort of to try and explain what's going on, use some of the older students who maybe get it, yeah. to explain it to the younger students. We've shown the numerous hand-washing videos that are out there, <laughs> um, you know, trying to tell them how it is you know, transmitted. But unfortunately, you know, Facebook is often a big influence on what people yeah. think is the truth. And so we're not only swimming against, you know, that tide, but also with a lack of, information coming out centrally we're we're trying to fill that void but young people are still anxious they're still listening to the radio hearing the news seeing it on their phones what would you like what would you like to see from the government there's a load of what ifs Mm -hmm. you know and and it it feels like they're scared to discuss the what ifs it feels like they're scared to say okay we can see what's happening around us. We've taken a slightly different route, and they're going to trust science, and we must trust the science. But if this, is the, if this does happen, here's the contingency pack. Here's the information you as school yeah. leaders need. And then we can go with planning it. I'm not asking them to plan it for me. Just give me permission to have some freedom to plan mm. it for them. But the Football Association took it into their own hands and yeah. said, we don't trust what the government is saying, so we are stopping all games. Yeah. Education can't do that, can they? We're in a really difficult place. You know, I'm a government employee. You know, my money comes directly from central government. Teachers I know are really worried. Really frustrated, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's a bit like snow closures, you know. You can't get it right as a a head teacher, and I understand Mm. that. You know, we have a role in society to educate children, but also to provide a safe space for them so parents can go on and, you know, also contribute to communities. So I'm very happy that that's the role we're taking. But what if... And that's the thing. What if I've got members of staff who've got elderly parents who, are, who they live with or yeah. they've got people with, you know, with underlying conditions? What if? What, what are we allowed to do? Remove the handcuffs from us. Yeah. You know, yesterday they even told us Ofsted was going to keep inspecting next week. You know, that, I mean, that's, that's just nonsensical. We are trying to actually be a government agent right now. We're trying to make sure yeah. our communities are looked after and the children are safe. So take the handcuffs off us. Let us know that we've got freedom to do stuff. And, and then, actually, the government will come out looking well out of it, not badly. Do you so think? Do you think, Vic, that schools should be closing? Um, I think, in science, we trust. Okay, mm. and I'm and I'm I'm very happy to to follow science. I think the problem I have is that when the prime minister, who has a low credibility amongst many teachers through the lies about funding over the last ten years. Unfortunately, it just taints whatever's said, and you, you, you just have that nagging doubt in the back of your head. Is this, is this about political expediency rather than anything mm. else? You know, I think fundamentally we're going to reach that tipping point within the next few days. I mean, if you look at the rest of you know other countries in Europe, Absolutely. they're way ahead of us in terms yeah. of preventative measures, and we just sort of sit in here with this keep calm and carry on approach, and we all know what's coming in the next couple of weeks if we're being yeah. realistic. So yeah, we, we do. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and unfortunately, stiff upper lips don't stop you catching disease. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Vic, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us. That is Vic Goddard, head teacher at Passmore's Academy. There, uh, if you are a teacher as well or a parent, you agreeing with him give us a call and tell us 0344 um i thought what he said there was really important about kind of understanding this from not the top down but the bottom mm. up the most vulnerable to begin yeah. with and yeah. you know, sarah i think you said earlier that actually we should be thinking also not just about children but we should be thinking about 
victims of domestic violence, yeah. which is if we tell people to self-isolate and we're telling people to self-isolate with people who are abusing who are abusive, them, yeah. we could see a real spike in the number of domestic violence cases. Yeah. What what should we be doing? Are there the things that we can do as a community to help those who are maybe more vulnerable? I think just checking in on your neighbours, you know, mm. checking in on your, your relatives, your old, especially your older ones, people who, you know, have disabilities keep communicating let's not cut each other off um and just not and isolate in that way i think now more than never you know we live in this world where we sort of text and whatsapp more than anything let's pick up a phone call you know speaking to you somebody have to really intentionally do intentionally that. Do, we have, yeah we have, a, we have to really push ourselves and do things that we used to do in the 90s you know yeah, yeah. and actually open up those communication doors because there's nothing worse than not having somebody to speak to and a lot of the older population go through that anyway and i think now yeah. more than ever they they watch the news they listen to the radio like we do so their mental health is going to be way more impacted because now they're thinking i'm more alone than ever yeah you know um yeah. i think it's about finding new ways of communicating and they're all yeah. out there now which is great technology yeah. should really come into play at this point we have a group that meets in our house 130 families and we've had to stop those meetings yeah uh, and they they are some of the most desperate people uh, and we've just said, keep, you guys have got our community here. Mm. All right, it's not going to meet, we're not going to see each other in the flesh, but there's loads we can be doing online, there's loads we can be doing on texting, yeah. WhatsApp, all those different forms of, of getting in contact. You've got to intentionally make use of them, though. You do. And I think another thing, which is going to sound a little bit odd, but we have to anticipate distress, you know? We have mm. to be realistic and know that, okay, the next few weeks are going to be very challenging, this is going to happen, so that when it does happen... We, we we know and we're expecting it and we're like, okay, we're planning ahead. You know, since our government can't plan ahead for us, we can plan ahead for ourselves emotionally at least. One of the things that I don't know if you've seen, it's gone slightly viral, was a video that was featured on Oprah, mm. which was a young woman uh, going into a Walmart, I think it's a Walmart in the US, and she's stopped in the car park by this couple, elderly couple in their car, and they're sat in their car, and the windows are rolling down. They say, can you come here, come here, come here? And they call her over and they say, you know, we're too scared. We're, oh, eight, yes, we're in our 80s. This. We're too scared to go in there wow. in case we get this in case we get this virus. Mm. And they give her money and get her to go and do their shopping for them. And I thought there's two things that really struck me, which is one, that actually we need now to be open to people reaching out. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I don't know about you ladies, but generally if people are kind of saying hello to me on the street, I'm just like, putting Whoa. my blinkers on and walking straight yeah. on. And actually now's the time when we need to reach out and really support. Yeah. And also we need to be thinking about who do we know that maybe we haven't been in touch with for a while, but yeah. might need that yeah. help, might need that support. I am just thinking about some of my elderly relatives and then some of their friends that live alone or that might actually just need a bag of groceries on their doorstep. And if you know people who live in, um, uh, what's it called, Uh, accommodation, you know, safe accommodation. Mm -hmm. Sheltered housing. Sheltered housing, that's what I was looking for. Um, Your local nursing homes, you can just Google and see, you know, an offer to help the staff that are there because there might be staff that have to go into isolation as well. You have to remember about, you know, the doctors, nurses and carers that look after people also are going to be in positions where they might not be able to do their jobs so just see where you can go into there are a great many people uh, elderly people who are unbelievably resourceful oh yeah Yeah. oh god I know my husband's uh, gran used to be like I'm going out to help the elderly and she was like (laughs) yeah it's fine (laughs) so you know there's a lot of that going on out there I'm sure oh I mean this absolutely reminds me of my godmother who's in her 70s and you know sort of broke her hip about a year ago and was still like no I'll be getting on my bicycle within a month I was like 
Maybe give it two. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other thing. I can also imagine I'm going to ring her and just check she's okay. And she's going to be furious with me for ringing her. I'm fine. fine. (laughs) I'll just drop some food around anyway. Uh, Coming up, we are going to be joined by Dr. Karen Gurney, a.k.a. The Sex Doctor, answering all your questions. Yes, it's time. Let's talk about sex. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. We are super excited because in the studio with us we have Dr. Karen Gurney, a.k.a. The Sex Doctor. Hello, Karen. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you for being here. Tell us, what does a sex doctor do? How did you become the sex doctor? (laughs) I was going to say, do you call these... Did you the title? (laughs) I just made it up. (laughs) So basically, I'm a clinical psychologist that specialises in sex. So... um, Lots of things that clinical psychologists specialise in. Mine happens to be sex. Been doing it for about 17 years. Um, Managing sexual problem services for the NHS and also privately for the Havelock Clinic. And yeah, my Instagram account is at the sex doctor. Did you always know that that was going to be the area of psychology you were going to go into? No, it was a complete fluke. I basically (laughs) ended up specialising in it accidentally because in my final year, when you do a specialist placement, I didn't really know what I wanted to do and my placement fell through because someone was on mat leave and they said, what do you think about sex? And, you know, sexual problems, sexual health. And I thought, sounds good. Sounds like there's going to be lots of comedy anecdotes. It's right near to my house. I'll take it. And started and knew it was a specialty for me. I absolutely loved it from from the first kind of second I arrived. And yeah, that was a long time ago now, but I, and I still love it every single day. It's a joy. What sort of things do you deal with as a sex doctor? So is it? I mean, I, actually, I'm not even going to start. You tell me. <laughs> so basically, I do a therapy with couples and individuals, and sometimes in workshop format, and sometimes digitally. And um, I'm basically <laughs> helping people get the sex life that they want. The digital, <laughs> digital. Oh, the digital, yes. I see. Sorry, I've just got dirty, dirty. Speaking of porn, You know what? There are so many puns in this job, you can't avoid them. Just, right, okay, this will just get a big laugh out now. Um, so I'm basically helping people with sexual problems, which could be concerns about desire, concerns about erections, concerns about painful sex, or sometimes it's just people are dissatisfied they're worried they're having too much sex they're feeling out of control with sex they're just feeling like things aren't right in their sex life so I'm a bit like a personal trainer for your sex life bringing in all of the science and all of the theory into therapy I can't even begin to think about the sort of research you're doing in order to be a personal trainer for your sex life Can you give us some of the best comedy stories? There are moments where you're like, because whenever we ask a doctor, you know, tell us about the A&E incident that you always remember, they've always got the one where something went up somewhere it shouldn't have gone. Are there, is there stuff where you're like, oh, I can't talk about it because I'm a doctor, but... Yeah, I, I actually can't really talk about it, mainly because I would hate my clients to think that I did talk mm. about it. Um, I guess it's fair to say that sometimes people are really worried about things that are really normal and in some ways for me there's very little that I'm shocked by there's very little that I haven't heard before but the biggest shocks come from people who are concerned you know that they're for example feeling out of control with sex Mm. because they're having sex like once a week or something Um, those are the ones that are almost most shocking but I I actually can't divulge any more than that I would hate people (laughs) to worry if they came to see me I think that's really interesting that people 
have this disconnect between what they think of as normal and what actually you think of as normal and what you see. Yes. Is that because we still, as a society, put masses of shame and guilt around sex? Yeah, so this is the biggest thing, actually, is that people are often drastically wrong with their ideas of what's normal when it comes Mm. to sex. And this is the thing I find so fascinating because most sexual problems are not actually problems within that person or within that relationship, but problems with how we see sex as a society. Mm. So for me, it can be quite frustrating as a therapist working with one person or a couple or a small group working on sexual problems. And actually, the change needs to be on a much bigger level. And it's got it's a societal level. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, people are worried that they're doing something that's abnormal. They're worried that they're not having sex enough. They're always drastically out when it comes to how often people are having sex. But people are still really worried about it. Um, they're in worried about all kinds years, of things. has normal changed? Yeah, I think it has, actually. And the research says that it has as well. So, for example, there is there anything we can't talk about on talk radio at you this time of night? You can't swear, but apart from that, you can talk okay, about that's whatever fine. you like. That's fine. Um, so the research tells us that there are some things that have changed over the decades. And one of those things, for example, is that in the UK, uh, younger generations have anal sex as a more standard part of their sexual practice than older people. And so there is a shift in people's ideas of what constitutes normal sex. So those types of things have changed. Is that because of pornography? I think that's like, that feels like the easy. It's one hypothesis. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of hypotheses. One is that are young people just more open Mm -hmm. and more happy to experiment? And I guess we see that in other areas with young people as well more fluid sexualities, more fluid gender expression. So it's a, a possible hypothesis. Or is it because what people see in porn more often portrays anal sex as a standard part of heterosexual sex, mm-hmm. which is a shift? So, And we do learn about sex, some of us do, from porn, so it could be. Uh, we don't really know for sure, but it's definitely a change. Are younger people having better sex? No, no. Mm. And sexual dissatisfaction in the UK is enormous. So around about just over half of women in the UK, just under half of men are concerned about their sex life and it doesn't discriminate across the age ranges. And I frequently see people in their 20s, uh, even people in their teens, who are very, very concerned about their sex life in all kinds of ways. So, no. And in some ways, I would say that younger people have it a little bit more challenging than older Mm -hmm. people as well because they're yet to develop all of those skills in assertiveness and confidence and being content with their bodies, yeah. um, and especially younger women. You know, yeah. we see we see kind of as women get older, they get more sexually confident, yeah. they get more assertive, they get um, more confident with their bodies. Um, in younger women, we don't see that, and that tends to really show itself in sex. Your book, Mind the Gap, The Truth About Desire and How to Future-Proof Your Sex Life, is out now. I'm so excited I get to read it. Um, Yes. Tell us the truth about desire. What do we mean when we use the word desire? Because we've all been through that stage where you meet someone and it's full-on lust and you can't get enough of them. Mm -hmm. And then one day you wake up next to them and you're like, now, you again. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so I wrote the book partly because, you know, we talked earlier about the gap between what people know about sex and what they could do with knowing. The biggest gap going, in my opinion, is the truth about desire. And this is a gap in knowledge which is adversely affecting the lives of 30, you know, just over 30% of women in the UK are concerned about their desire. 
So it's a, it's a thing. People are worried about it. They're not feeling like sex. And actually, if they knew how desire worked, they wouldn't be worried about it and they'd know what to do about it. But nobody's saying it. So the truth about desire is that we kind of have this idea that desire operates uh, like a sex drive, something that's there and present and is independent of other contexts, so a bit like hunger or thirst. And actually, desire doesn't work like that, that desire is entirely context-based and is cultivated between two people. So what happens at the start of a relationship, as you say, is that people tend to experience a lot of spontaneous desire. So there's loads of reasons for that, which I won't go into, but it happens at the start of a relationship. And then what we know is that for women particularly, but also for lots of men too, about a year or 18 months in, that spontaneous desire often goes away either completely or almost completely. And so a large proportion of women, we know this is backed up by science, if you ask them how often they feel like sex with their long-term partner, they'll say either never or almost never. And that should be considered normal. Now, if women knew that that was normal, I can guarantee there are a lot of women listening that are breathing a sigh of relief because women do not know this and they think it's a problem with them or with their relationship. And sometimes they even say to me, it's definitely me because it's happened in every long-term relationship I've been in and that's because it's a long-term relationship, not because it's them. So the truth about desire is that, but then there's a second truth, which is that women's desire is really easy to trigger in the right context Mm -hmm. but because we're waiting to feel like it women are often putting barriers up to the right context does that make sense Mm -hmm. so if your partner kisses you and you think that they want something that you don't currently Mm -hmm. want you put a kind of virtual stop sign to that kiss because you're like i don't want to have sex exactly but that's the opposite of what your desire needs we are going to keep talking to karen about this dr karen Gurney, aka the sex doctor uh coming up after the break more about how we trigger desire and maybe a little bit about whether or not the coronavirus might be good for it (laughs) if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist visit juvederm.com that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Let's get back to our guest. And before the break, you said that essentially desire is something that just sort of dies off at about a year to 18 months into a relationship. How do we bring it back? Can you can we bring it back? Absolutely. So um, spontaneous desire, out of the blue desire, is the type of desire that's normal for it to subside. And it, it's important to say it's not for all women, it's just for a large proportion of women and also plenty of men too. But the actual desire we want to be thinking of is the desire that can be triggered. Now, that desire doesn't change. But what happens is the way in which we conduct our sex lives means that that desire doesn't get triggered. So we end up experiencing little or very no uh, very little or no desire does it take longer to trigger that desire in women than it does in men no not at all no so if you um some you know the research says if you kind of wire women and men up to machines that measure their arousal and you put them both into a screen with headphones on watching porn women and men's desire will be triggered at the same rate so it might be that there's a difference in their amount of spontaneous desire. But when you look at triggered desire, which is the one we really want to be thinking about, mm-hmm. there is no difference at all. I mean, I am fascinated by this, but I have to check in on something that I talk about as fact all the time, and I'm not sure that I am, which I think relates to the research you just talked about, which is when we uh, think about what turns on men and what turns on women, I quote this fabulous piece of research that I read about somewhere and now I don't know where it is, which says that men tend to be turned on by basically how they identify sexually. So if they're heterosexual, they're turned mm-hmm. on by heterosexual pornography, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas women are kind of turned on by anything and everything. Is that That's true? That's right. Um, mm. It's important to say that it's heterosexual women. Yeah, oh. so if you if you split the groups with women who are also interested in any way with sex with other women, those women have the same response to to men, to only being turned on by the things they're turned on by. So there's something about heterosexual women's sexuality that has this broad response to arousal. So, yeah, it's it, there have been many hypotheses put forward as to why, which I won't go through, there's like 10 of them, maybe more, but we don't actually know why, but there is something there in that. But that suggests that naturally, actually, women are more attracted to women and we've evolved to be attracted to men in order to procreate, almost. <laughs> there's several, several <laughs> suggestions. And it's, it's, an, it's really interesting data, and I think we'll probably know in the next few years what that's all about. I do talk about that in the book, I believe, that, is, that data. So is once fascinating. you get past 18 months, I mean, I've been married for... How long have I been married for? 27 years. Too long to remember. <laughs> yeah, 27 years this year. Wow, well done. Um, so you, you cannot always expect that you're going to be going, whoa, I'm really up for it tonight. That- you should expect not to, actually. Yeah. So sometimes sex is a decision. It's like, yes. I really love you and I really want to show you that. And yeah. let's, mm-hmm. let's get into that place where we're, mm-hmm. we're having sex. That's yeah. right. So we should think of um, desire less as a sexual drive and more of a motivation. And of course, for us to be motivated to do something, it first has to be rewarding. 
And that's why the orgasm gap is quite important because unless something is rewarding, and it doesn't have to be just physically, it has to be emotionally, psychologically rewarding, um, then we're less inclined to do it. And because desire is a motivation, um, those people out there that might be having sex that's not that rewarding in many ways are going to be less inclined to be motivated to do it. But when it is good, when it is motivating, it's important to notice that this information we talked about around spontaneous desire not being that present means that we should consider that women especially are starting from a place of what we call sexual neutrality that is without desire but the motivations for sex are actually much wider than desire there are over 200 documented reasons from research as to why humans are motivated to have sex and so there are lots of reasons like to show attraction to feel close to feel connected out of obligation because you're bored because you're isolated at home mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll come With on to that maybe to yeah so it's important to note that the motivation is often not desire for lots of people it's often something else sometimes the motivation is wanting to feel desire what happens is you're motivated to do it for some reason you engage in something that will trigger your desire desire actually arrives quite late to the party once the party's mm-hmm. got started and this is the reason why women often say to me I hardly ever feel like having sex but when we do have sex it's great and I say to my partner we should do that more often and that's a sentence that I hear time and time again and that's because desire is triggered once people are motivated to get started does that make sense? Yeah. You don't have to sort of wait for to, and say, okay, now I want to have sex. You have to wait yeah. forever. And you would yeah. be, a lot of people will be waiting forever and, and that's part of the problem of, and, and that's why I wrote the book specifically for people in long-term relationships or people wanting to understand it for a long-term relationship is because the context of a long-term relationship, a monogamous relationship, is actually quite challenging for desire for all kinds of reasons, for familiarity, for predictability, for the diluting of your roles as sexual partners to being like housemates and co-parents and Mm -hmm. life admin partners and all kinds of things. And so for a lot of people waiting to feel spontaneous desire and managing their sex life like that is just not working for them. So should we be saying that we are scheduling sex? I mean, I have a friend who has sex every single day. She mm-hmm. and her partner have been together, I think, about 12 years now. Oh, wow. And For every- the listeners, that's Impressive. way above, <laughs> way above <laughs> what most people are doing. I mean, when she told me, I was like, 12 years every they day? they got kids? Uh, they do, yes. Oh, that's and even more impressive. Where are the kids uh, when they're doing all that? I don't know. I don't know where they put them. Or what they in school. Them. But in school. every day regardless. And, I, and she says it's like exercise. It's like she just says, I go for a run. So I get up and I go for a run. Or mm-hmm. I just say, actually, today we're just having sex. And she, because she said, I'm so terrified that we'll get out of the habit and then we'll mm-hmm. stop and then we'll drift. And her desire is probably triggered. She's motivated to do it because yeah. it's important to her. And once she starts, her desire probably follows. Isn't that motivated by fear? Fear yeah. that what would happen in my relationship if I wasn't yeah. doing that, it? That often is a motivator for sex, worried about losing mm-hmm. someone, worry about their satisfaction. But I would say that it's important to note that frequency is not a great indicator of sexual satisfaction. Mm. So frequency kind of doesn't really matter. And it's really important not to be having sex that you don't feel like having. I don't Mm -hmm. mean non-consensual sex, obviously that's important, Mm. but I mean sex that you're going along with but that's not that great. Um, It's actually bad for your desire because of that reward thing we talked about earlier. Um, So in terms of scheduling sex, I always say no to scheduling sex. I don't think it's a good idea because... 
desire is uh, terrible with pressure. So everyone knows if they've had a night booked in a hotel. Yes. Um, or something where it's expected. That's the time when people really don't feel like it because desire is just like, no, I don't want to do it now because mm-hmm. you're telling me to do it. So scheduling for that reason, no. But scheduling physical intimacy, yes, because that's what triggers desire. So um, I'd be definitely be a fan of that. And so what I often say to couples I work with is if, the t- if sex is important to you, but yet you live a really busy life, and you only have half an hour alone together without the kids when all the jobs are done at the end of the night and it's at the end of the night and you're tired and blah, blah, blah. And then you expect to both be on the same page at that moment in time. You're really giving yourself a massive challenge. And to think about the fact that desire needs to be triggered, you kind of need to plan ways to trigger it into your daily life, which might be swapping, you know, one night a week or one night a month of watching Netflix together to saying, you know, let's just hang out on the sofa and kiss, let's go to bed early, be naked together with a glass of wine. It doesn't have to lead anywhere, but it's something that will probably trigger desire. Do men need sex more than women? Is that a myth or is that... Because when I look at sort of the stereotypes that I see in long-term relationships, it's generally the men complaining, oh, I haven't had sex for five years or whatever. Mm. Is, Is that... A physiological thing or do you think it's a societal thing which makes men think they should be having sex every minute of every day? So there's definitely a societal thing mm-hmm. where men are um, socialised to think that they should be wanting sex more and initiating sex more. That's definitely the case. It's certainly also the case that more men might report spontaneous desire more than women. We know it's easier for men to maintain desire for the same person in the long term than it is for women. So there are lots of reasons, both biological and psychological and sociological, why men might think about sex a bit more. But in terms of wanting sex, I would say it's it's equal. It's just that women bear the brunt sometimes of an orgasm gap, mm-hmm. so not having yeah. as much physical reward from it, and often bear the brunt of doing more life admin around the house and having more on their mind, which mm-hmm. distracts them away from it. So... Um, It's a complex picture, actually. But I would say that it sometimes does men a disservice, that idea, because there are plenty of men who are also not feeling much desire and worrying about it. And there are plenty of women who are experiencing higher desire than their male partners. Mm. So, yeah. You talk in the book about this idea of future-proofing your sex life. Mm -hmm. So I have just started a relationship very excited about it (laughs) and um obviously we're in that lovely lust phase where you just fancy each other all the time Mm -hmm. but i am very concerned about what happens when we're not in that phase how do we don't need to be do i not need to be (laughs) no you don't good tell me why so basically there is no reason why couples can't sustain a brilliant sexual connection over decades and decades and we see that in research and we know it happens and we know exactly what the factors are that keep that good and that's why at the end of the book in part three, it's all about what does the research tell us about couples that keep this? How do they keep it? And there are some really surprising things in there. So one of the things that's kind of fundamental, and it seems quite obvious, but it's often something that's hard for couples, is about how easy they find it to talk about sex. So we know there's a direct correlation between being able to talk about sex and sexual satisfaction more so than anything else. You know, whether you have different ideas about how much you want it, different ideas about how it should look, none of that matters as much as being able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. 
And the reason for that is that, of course, over time, your wants and needs change, your body changes, there's stuff yeah. going on in your life, your preferences change, you know, things are always shifting. And if you can't discuss it, often that's where it gets problematic. Mm. But then there are other more surprising things in there. So one of my favourites is about um, the personality trait of conscientiousness. So it's a, <laughs> of all of the big five personality traits, it's the one that you would least associate with a good sexual relationship. Yeah. But actually we know that people who are fairly conscientious in life tend to um, keep sex a priority and make an effort to do something about that. And so this I is worrying me. It's not, my, it's not my strong suit. <laughs> Only one of you has to be like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's fine. Um, there, are, there are plenty of other things as well, but really what I was aiming to do with the, with the book was to write a book for everyone, whether their, book, whether their sex life is um, not going so great because they're mm -hmm. concerned about desire, or whether their sex life is amazing, but it's important for them for it to stay that way. It's how do you bring all of this research together in a way that you can kind of make practical changes in your sex life to keep it good in the long term? I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I cannot wait to get stuck into it and basically pin a list up on the wall of the things we're going to do in order to be free. <laughs> um, Mind the Gap, The Truth About Desire and How to Future Proof Your Sex Life by Dr. Karen Gurley. It's out now. Uh, go get it. It's great. Karen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You're immensely reassuring. Brilliant. Loved it. So uh, oh, actually, I didn't ask you the important question. Oh, Can yes. having more <laughs> sex protect us from the coronavirus? Well, theoretically, it could help because obviously sex, masturbation or boost your immune function. So, you know, it could help. But I think what I'm more interested in is are people going to be having more sex because they're going to be having more time on their hands? This is what mm. I think. And you've bought... A few babies. Well, yeah, I know. Traditionally, right, this is when, before the days of electricity and things, that's why you had bigger families, because the second it got dark, there was nothing else to do. Yeah. I, so come I October, so. November, it's going to be a boom, boom yeah. Boom. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's possible. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Badass Women's Hour. Thank you for listening to this episode of Badass Women's Hour. If you enjoyed the podcast, do me a favour, subscribe or maybe leave a review or just give us five stars. All of that helps other people find us and lets us spread the word. And if you'd like to chat to me in between shows or you've got a guest you think we should interview, do find me at Harriet Minter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 